Welcome to Our Soul, a podcast by Kelly Fox and Terry Williams from the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Welcome everyone back to Our Soul. We're very excited to be joined today by Dr. Yvonne Zimmerman. Dr. Zimmerman is Associate Academic Dean and the Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at the Methodist Theological School in Ohio, which if some of you are paying attention, you know is an alma mater for both of your regular hosts, both (laughs) myself and Kelly Fox, our uh, proud alums of MTSO. And we're joined here by Dr. Zimmerman, who uh, has a PhD from ILIF, I believe, ILIF uh, in Denver, and uh, specializes in particularly Christian ethics, but feminist and social theory, gender and sexuality studies, uh, U.S. human trafficking policy, liberationist ethics, lots of, of things fall under uh, that, uh, that moniker. So as we gather here, Dr. Zimmerman, we're so glad to have you here. And, uh, you know, I invite you to share a little about yourself with our listeners, just so they know who you are and where you're coming from. Thanks, Terry. Um, I am really delighted to be here with you and Kelly this afternoon. I, um, Got my PhD in religion and social change from the joint PhD program at Iowa School of Theology and University of Denver, and I've been teaching Christian ethics at MTSO since that time. And I teach classes uh, on justice, on basic sort of introduction to Christian ethics, Christian social ethics, uh, queer theological ethics, um, and every now and then I will teach a class on human trafficking, which is um, the center of my research. And so one of the things that um, I was really interested in, sort of what sort of what grabbed me about human trafficking as a topic, like before I started my PhD work, I worked uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and I worked at a rape crisis center there and I managed the volunteer hotline. And so like I was responsible for training volunteers and like kind of, well, managing the hotline. Um, (laughs) This was before text and all the, all the ways hotlines now work. Um, but anyway, like one of the things that was really like um, emphasized in that kind of training was about how people who experience sexual assault and sexual violence, like they are, they've had their agency like violated or taken away in that, in that event or series of events. But like, like they aren't, I don't know, ontologically victims. Like they, they mm-hmm. experienced uh, an assault and so they had an experience of being a victimization but even in even at the point of contact and coming into like the services that that our organization was providing or if they were getting um help and support through other you know organizations or individuals that like that they were always in this transition or process of, of becoming a survivor and uh, you know that so that like being a victim is something that like happens at a point in time but it doesn't like then define Mm-hmm. everything about who you are forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, but that there's something beyond an experience of victimization. And one mm-hmm. of the things that I, and so like that was really like became uh, important, like important to me or it's sort of something I took for granted, like that like, yes, bad things happen to people and you can survive that and and like create life. There is life and like after that. But when it came to human trafficking, and again, this was, a, I want to emphasize, this was like in the early 2000s, like 
these women, there was no talk about agency there. Like, there was no mm. talk about, it was sort of like, you know, like, once a victim, all, like, once this happened to you, like, life was just a, a series of terrible things. Like, yes, you could be rescued, but you were always da damaged. Or, there, mm. you know, there was always this sense of, like, oh, that poor, pathetic... A lot, you know, like a lot of sort of in, infantilizing language and diminutive language and just like that this will like really destroy you and there is no hope of rebuilding. Now, I want to be clear, nobody said that overtly, but like when you read all these media reports or like watched the movies or um, even read a lot of the academic work that was being done around that time around these kinds of things like I was just like well this is really like so I was really struck I was like in many ways like the constituent aspects of these like crimes as they're understood like in terms of the law are like pretty darn similar and yet the advocates so now I'm not necessarily talking about the law at this point but the advocates when we're talking around like rape and sexual assault are like insisting on like you come you become a survivor and like life does not have to be defined by that moment but when we're talking about human trafficking there is this like oh yeah your life is going to be defined by that moment forever and we are never for one minute going to let you ever 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 forget and i was just thinking um so i like i became aware of like that contradiction that like disjunct and and sort of wanted to think a little more carefully about what was going on there. I began to to think about who was, I mean, at the most simple level, who was benefiting from this narrative of like people who experience this, in particular women who experience this, like they are victims with a capital V and like mm -hmm. they're, they never, like they, like they, it's like they're damaged goods. Like they can never, like their status can never be restored. And so I began to think like, oh, there's something with power going on here. Like, this is a power relation, and like that's what I want to hone in on. Um, and that sort of that what I'm narrating there sort of began to produce what became my book, Other Dreams of Freedom, which is a little bit different than that because what I um, went on to write my dissertation about actually was to try to identify and surface in the U.S.'s federal anti-trafficking legislation that was passed in 2000, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, how the imaginary of human trafficking, um, which often is, is, was and is still talked about in terms of um, slavery or sexual slavery or female sexual slavery, but like using that mot the motif of slavery and then it's opposite. I mean, this is like a binary imagination. It's opposite or like what you're hoping for for people is freedom. So this mm -hmm. like slavery freedom binary was really structured um, by sort of a Protestant imagination of what those mm -hmm. things meant. And the deeper I got, I began to see that like um, Protestant sexual ethics feed into that a lot. Um, and so I wanted to be able to raise some critical questions around saying like, I mean, I'm, I'm Protestant. So like, you know, like I'm in some ways, this is like the moral imagination that has shaped me and mine, but like not everybody in the world is Protestant. Not everybody in the U.S. is Protestant. So what does it mean to be using this um, sort of 
structural configuration of what freedom and unfreedom, you know, slavery and freedom means and putting that on like putting that on people's lives and also like that their access to resources and the things they need to like survive get get hitched to whether they are willing to articulate and narrate their life experiences around this like Protestant imaginary. And so that's where I could sort of yeah. interface with Christian ethics to be like, yeah, I mean that is actually deeply problematic. And it strikes me, you know, coming from a, a fundamentalist background in, in my heritage, you know, I, I'm a reformed fundamentalist, you know, coming, coming out of that tradition. Um, a lot of what you're mentioning and what you're saying um, really resonates with what I was taught in terms of sexual ethics around things like virginity myths and the concept of sexual purity and privatism. And, you know, for, for those of us in repro, like, that is the root. And it's ultimately an ideal that is is not reality. It's not actually true anywhere, but it's held up as the mythology of what every, particularly, you know, women or people who aren't male-presenting have to live up to in our culture. And the moment anything deviates from that myth it is soiled it is wrong it is uh, you know this kind of horrible travesty um you know that that idea that oh all of these people they're now victims they're defined by that and they're defined by the fact that they are not perfection anymore in in the protestant imagination of sexual morality or sexual ethics the the only kind of legitimately moral sex is married heterosex. Mm-hmm. Period. Anything else in that binary category is sin, it is impure, it's wrong, it's immoral, and it's using, uh, again, using theological categories, if you aren't quote-unquote free in Christ, you are a slave to sin. Mm. So that means uh, situations or like, uh, scenarios as wildly <laughs> different as like any queer sexuality, any queer sexual experiences or contact, um, sexual assault, uh, hookup to people who of any of any gender identity who are like deeply in love and having sex, all of that undifferentiatedly <laughs> gets put in the category of sexual sin because the deal is, is it's not married heterosex. And mm-hmm. so it's, it, it's, it's sin. And so it doesn't matter whether it is um, loving. It doesn't matter whether it's consensual. It doesn't matter. Like any of those things that might be the kinds of values that might be brought on to say like, ah, well, I think morally there's a distinction between like, um, rape and two people who are in love having sex, like from the perspective of this, the way the binary gets set up, which is the binary of purity culture, they're mm-hmm. wrong because they're not married. Like, mm-hmm. and so whether consent was violated or consent was given yeah. becomes more, becomes absolutely morally irrelevant. And so, uh, that's the, um, that's the thick, like that's part of the thicket of sort of deconstructing the way sexual morality is even set up and imagined that makes something like human trafficking like 
mm-hmm. really difficult to talk about in public spaces um, because at the end of the day, why many Americans, religious or not, Protestant or not, you know, like at the end of the day, the reason they object to what they call human trafficking is because those folks aren't married. Right. And, and it don't like for me as a, as a Protestant pastor, um, when I, when I hear that construct, the first thing that struck me is, well, what we're really saying is any sexual activity that does not have the blessing of the state or the church, right, is now suspect, right? Because marriage is in, in a Protestant ethic, marriage is primarily uh, a function of the church approving or, you know, in more recent times of the state approving and, you know, the church kind of honoring that. But like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I have people all the time who, you know, call me up and they say, hey, you know, we decided to get married. Are you going to be able to like do our wedding? And it's in like, you know, 10, 12 days. And I have to be real <laughs> 10, clear with them. Days. Right. I mean, you know, and, and I have to be real clear with them that in my denomination, we require, um, you know, a, a conscience based system of preparation for marriage. Like I can't just go and perform a wedding ceremony with people I haven't met or haven't been around or I haven't talked through things because a marriage through the church and through me as an agent of the church implies that the church has done due diligence to help individuals understand what the expectations of the faith community are with them that, you know, to, to talk through, um, you know, okay, here, here are the, here are the elements of, you know, what an ethical marriage looks like from our tradition. And it, it strikes me, you know, the definition of anything that is not within the bounds of, you know, married heterosex is now anathema, right? It's, it's saying you have to go through this gate of this institutional system. Otherwise you're just, you're just wrong and awful and horrible and, you know, we're going to heap all this on you. One of the things that it misses significantly is that, like, marriage at this point in time, like, you know, 21st century, it's a context. Like, And so what we're saying is sex in this context of any kind is okay, and sex outside of that context, any kind, is not okay. And so I've already said, like, it it collapses, it puts some very strange sorts of things in the same moral category on the, on the, like, impure, bad, and evil side, but also on the, like, pure and morally, on the, yes, also on the pure and morally legitimate side, it, it um, gives uh, sanction or approval to all kinds of violence within violence and abuse within the within the situation of marriage. Because yeah. if all you're asking is like, are you married or are you not? That means when there is um, abuse and assault and rape happening within marriage, there's no there is there there is no um, moral leverage by which to say, I don't care if you're married. <laughs> yeah, that's wrong. Yeah. Um. And so so it 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 um creates these moral distortions that do not serve us. Mm. I don't care if they're theologically legitimated because at the end of the day, the question for me as an ethicist is, does it lead to more just, equitable, and flourishing lives? You know, does, does this serve the people, all of the people, all of the, you know, and all of the other living beings that it's, 
that are involved, not about whether yeah. it, ma it matches up to some external standard. Like, that's a lazy way of doing ethics. And mm. and I think like mm. this this whole conversation about like needing to be married and heterosexual, just talking about marriage in general and like the access to marriage that a person can have, like getting married, even if you like don't take all the theatrics out of it um, and you just like legally get married, that is still like a process that costs money and um, is is not easily accessible to all people, especially people who like, you know, and and even thinking about outside of the money, like you have to go to the courthouse and you have to physically be there and, uh, you know, like swear that you're, you know, under or that you know what you're doing. And then, you know, I've been kind of like listening to to y'all talk. This reminds me a lot of uh, being in class and um, uh, just thinking about like the the accessibility to that and just also the fact that like it's like the state and the church um has to affirm that you know what you're doing with your life which like you know thinking again terry you were talking about like uh, when it comes to marrying someone like if you don't know them like you under you know in in your context you cannot marry them and i i was in a similar context when i got married um and like how much does the church or, you know, uh, the state really know the people and know mm. that even like that this wedding mm. is good for them or whatever? So there are so many instances where I think like marriage can be used to to allow people to continue to be in abuse. And because of, you know, um, something that I have really learned in the last few years is like, you know, a person doesn't have agency unless they know they have agency, unless they know they have like the right to consent to something, then they don't actually. And like when it comes to like relationships and especially marriage, like you, there can easily be situations of abuse and, um, and violence there that, you know, uh, a person and especially like a woman or a femme, um, may go a long time without feeling like they have a place to you know speak about harms that they're experiencing and things like that um as well when i during this whole conversation something that i've been kind of thinking about is um you know as as a, a repro organization and um we talk about abortion and all of that um there's there's kind of this stigmatizing line of thinking that like you know it's like uh, we want safe, legal, and rare. And like that rare part is like a part of it. And you know, you were talking about how um, when somebody has experienced uh, or has been uh, through human trafficking, uh, they're kind of like always branded with that. And when I think of like the safe, legal, and rare, the, the way that people talk about their abortions in those situations is like, oh, I had an abortion, it was such a bad thing. And like now I'm just always gonna think about how I had to make this terrible decision. And I think like in general, uh, just thinking about this whole conversation, there's a lack of being able to see things from another person's perspective and to imagine that, you know, uh, what I may consent to may not be the same thing that you want to consent to. Right. And like, that's fine. And like oh, what right. you may want to do is not necessarily something that I want to do. And that's fine. And there doesn't have to be like this this morality around 
the decisions that we consent to unless someone is being harmed. Um, but, like, because, um, you know, uh, the, the church wants this idea of uh, married heterosex, um, it's like as if no, nothing for anyone else could ever be as good as married heterosex. Um, even though that's absolutely not true. And if you could see it from like a queer person's perspective or somebody who's not married and in a sexual relationship's perspective, they can consent to that and have a beautiful flourishing life and not want to live into your ideas of what is good for them. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting as you were talking, I was thinking about the ways in which um, part of it's like US American culture, but um, it's, it's also, I think, um, a lot of a lot of Christian sexual ethics actually do not really it's not only that they don't do it it's that they sort of actively don't do what I'm going to say next and that is is this idea that like when we think about like what moral aid like adult moral agency is or sort of like moral agency when it's like in a, a pretty a pretty fully developed form. It's always developing, so it's not like it ever reaches an apex, but like the <laughs> idea of like when it's do it, doing its thing, like it actually equips us to make choices in the context of our own lives. Doesn't It does not guarantee we will always make like the greatest choices or, you know what I mean? Like, so there's, we're never gonna be at a point in our lives where we make 100% of our choices in ways that were like, I was amazing. I made the best <laughs> choice. Like, um, you know, this idea of like some, you know, you learn, like life is a learning process. But oftentimes the sexual ethics that people get taught actually socialize them away from being capable of making and taking like responsibility for the choices, particularly the sexual choices that they make mm -hmm. in their lives, whether that's about with whom to be like intimate with, or whether that's about like um, whether to have a, a child or, you know, like, like the whole, the whole reign. Mm -hmm. And like, what I really think that we should be doing, like the constructive piece is to say, how do we form people from like little on up to be able to be capable you know, be human beings who are capable of like taking responsibility and act actively making moral choices in our lives so that we're not just deferring to like, oh, or am, am I married or not? Or are they, or are we married or not? Like, but to say like, what are my, what are my sexual values? Like, how mm -hmm. do I want to live in the world? And what will that mean for me? Mm -hmm. Both like generally speaking, but also like in, in X, Y, or Z, circumstance that I'm faced with. And again, I don't mean because people will always make choices that are fully consistent with the values that they hold, but like we don't even give people the opportunity to practice that because we yeah. tell them that whenever they do that, they're sinning. Right. Or, um, or that they're being victimized. And again, I'm not saying that people aren't being victimized, but even people mm -hmm. who are experiencing victimization get to make choices mm -hmm. about their and lives. and. And I, I feel like, you know, speaking as like a survivor, like being able to say for myself, like uh, I was a person who like experienced sexual violence is, is a whole different thing than somebody else telling me that I experienced sexual violence. I know like with, with my own experience after, um, 
you know, like it, there was like court proceedings and like people went to jail and it wasn't until after all of that, that like I really came to terms with the fact that somebody took control of me in a way that like I did not consent to and that was wrong. And um, it's it's a different experience than having, you know, the church tell me like, oh, because you had sex for, before marriage, like you were, you know, used in this way and you've committed or this person has committed a sin against you or whatever. Um, knowing that for yourself and being able to say that for yourself is oh, just like, huge. even that is empowering. Yeah, that's huge. And then I think that's the piece is it's got to resonate for the person who has to ultimately like narrate and give account for their their lives and like the mm -hmm. meaning of their lives not just like this is what i've done or or mm -hmm. was done to me but like this is what it means and i feel like um one of the opportunities that is there is to like really give people and to like nurture that possibility of like you get to give an account of your life you get to say what this means for you and nobody else gets to say that even if it is against the like even if what happened is against the law and even if these you know like these kinds of things it's not to say we don't right. need things like the law but to say like at the end of the day like if it doesn't resonate with your experience you got to keep working at it until you can say something that does and that's like and, to me and that's I, like that is part of what moral agency is like being able to like yeah. say something that resonates with your experience and and i think in particular when we start thinking about you know doing doing ethics that may go against the law right um that conversation is very prescient for the work that we do here at ohio rcrc right now because mm -hmm. we are facing a future without row we're facing a yes. future where people may make moral decisions that are religiously and and within their faith life moral that might contravene the law per se but they are moral and they're ethical and when we start thinking about, you know, these these lazy ethical standards that say, well, you know, any kind of sex that is uh, within marriage is ethical. It's the same kind of lazy, uh, you know, ethics that get done outside of abortion clinics when people say things like, well, no matter what you do, you must have this baby because that's the only moral choice is to mm -hmm. go forward with this pregnancy. You know, for those of us who, who deal with this, this moral quandary on a daily basis, the reality is it's not. Your mm -hmm. ethical standard of a single litmus test is so insufficient to the magnitude and the beauty of the lives of the individuals who are making these difficult and sometimes not difficult decisions every day. Mm -hmm. Whether the law gives them that guidance or the church gives them that guidance or whether they just know in their heart that this is what they are called to do despite any other voice in their life. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think, is the, the profound... Uh, heart of of our quandary that people get to make their own decisions right that yeah. is that is and the no freedom that we look about for that. yeah 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 well i could mm. i mean we could continue to have this conversation all day mm. Mm -mm. Um, and <laughs> i like this could be you know a really long podcast but because we are on the radio we <laughs> must cut this uh this episode here but it has been really great uh, talking with you, Dr. Zimmerman, and just having this conversation about um, who who gets to decide what goes on in people's lives and um, 
and what what it looks like to actually have agency um it's just a very interesting conversation and something that mm. I'm really committed to. So uh, thank you so much for, yes, for being Thank you us. for the opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, for all y'all listening, uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks. And I know for a lot of us, we're very anxious about what's coming up in a couple of weeks with the uh, hearing about, you know, what we were just talking about, the potential end for um, Roe at the Supreme Court. So uh holding or hang in there and uh we will be back with a new podcast episode that same week uh see you then this episode includes even more content when you listen to it online if you'd like to listen to our podcast exclusive please check out spotify apple podcast or ohiorcrc.org slash podcast to hear the extended version of this conversation Remember, you can always check out previous editions of Our Soul on our website at ohiorcrc.org forward slash podcast. And while you're there, feel free to look around at all the other super cool content we have to offer to help you faithfully speak out for abortion access and reproductive freedom all across Ohio.